Mormon Discussion Podcast is about helping Latter-day Saints like you lead with faith while tackling deeper, complex issues within Mormonism. All financial support goes directly towards keeping the podcast alive and supporting listeners like you. To support the podcast, please consider becoming a premium subscriber at mormondiscussionpodcast.org. Again, that's mormondiscussionpodcast, all one word, dot org. You can do this for as little as $1.50 a month or $12 a year. And this will also reward you by letting you listen to premium episodes like this one months before the general public has access. Thanks for listening. And now, on to what you've been waiting to hear. John Ogden, welcome to Mormon Discussion. How are you today? I'm doing well, thanks. Good, good. Glad to have you on today. Uh, you've got a book that just came out. Um, I just got the chance just to finish this the other night and and really looking forward to our conversation. You've written the book, When Mormons Doubt, with the subtitle, A Way to Save Relationships and Seek a Quality of Life. Uh, first off, before we jump into the book and maybe jump into a little bit of your story, uh, maybe just share with the listeners just a brief bio of who you are so they can get a feel for you. Sure. I I don't know if my life is terribly exciting, but I have grown up in Utah my whole life, I served a two-year mission in California and spent some time studying abroad. Um, but other than that, I just have lived in Utah. I went to BYU. I got a bachelor's in English literature, a master's in rhetoric and civil discourse. And then I currently work as a marketer. I do content marketing. A master's in rhetoric. Now, yep. I've never, I, that sounds exciting. That sounds like something I would love to do. Is this is this where you learn to walk people in circles in, in the way you conversate with them? <laughs> uh, a little bit the opposite. I would say at least the direction I took it was try to learn how to uh, articulate myself more clearly and uh, resolve differences of belief. Gotcha, gotcha. I'm sure that comes in handy with all the stuff that we're going to talk about today. I uh, I want to jump a little bit into your story and and obviously you and I both know there are, you know, thousands, if not hundreds of thousands of Latter-day Saints right now who are struggling with, with maybe originally falling into what they would call a faith crisis and then, and then realizing as they begin to get their feet kind of under them that this is something bigger and, and maybe calling it a faith transition or faith deconstruction and reconstruction, whatever term we want to mm-hmm. give it. But the realization that there's a lot of Mormons right now who have left the sphere of knowing, and have entered this paradigm of doubt, which you address in your book. Would you mind maybe just telling us a little bit of your story of, of when when you, you know, how old were you and, and what were some of the things you were thinking about and how did you work through your own process of, of leaving that black and white certainty and entering a sphere of like everything being messy and not really knowing anymore and now just having to kind of like think these things through in a whole new way? Sure. So I would say that the biggest turn came on my mission, and I had just been having conversations with many different investigators in California, and even just people I met on the street, many who knew something about Mormonism, and a few who had actually done research um, about what I would have termed at the, at the time anti-Mormon material, and I just discovered things that I hadn't known before. Uh, the book of Abraham Papyrus, that that had been found and it didn't match what Joseph Smith had um, said the book of the, the Papyrus was. And then um, Joseph Smith's Many Wives, those kind of things. And it shook me pretty badly, I would say. Uh, I wrote home and asked my dad for help. I talked to my mission president. I wrote a 
high school teacher that I really liked who uh, wasn't a Mormon. And I was just trying to figure out what to make of all this new information I had I had found while I was a missionary. And so the answers I got were enough to alleviate most of my concerns at the time. And so I kind of said, okay, I'm going to commit to keep serving a mission and I'm just going to, I guess the vernacular is put it on the shelf. And then when I got home, I attended BYU and just didn't think about those things. I just focused on schoolwork and dating. And it wasn't until my younger sister and my best friend from high school left the church that I started thinking about these things again because they didn't leave out of rebellion. They left because they had studied world religions or just Mormon history in detail and came to conclusions that came to the conclusion that organized religion or Mormonism wasn't for them. And so that's when I started studying more in depth stuff like Rough Stone Rolling, um, uh, David O. McKay and the Rise of Modern Mormonism, other books like that. And I realized that, indeed, the narrative was a lot more complex than I had thought. Right, right. How, how long ago was this that you were out on your mission and, and this all started to come down? Sure. So my mission was 2002 to 2004. And then um, it was about 2010 when I had that second wave. Right. It's, I'm just I'm racing through thoughts in my head as you talk about sharing... You know, your struggle with a, with a non-member teacher. I did the same thing. I was in my senior year of high school hmm. as I was investigating the church and I read, uh, No Man Knows My History by Fawn Brody. Okay. And it, and it caused obviously a lot of contradictive thinking between what, what Fawn Brody is writing about in terms of Joseph Smith and the Restoration and what the missionaries are teaching me at the very same time about the restored gospel. And so I, I went to an English teacher in our community. Um, I'm from Ohio. There just aren't a lot of Mormons. So every teacher is non-Mormon. Right. Um, in my school. So, but, but she gave me some really wise answers. And, and as I'm thinking about you sharing this, I, I want to ask, like, you go off on your mission. And when you, when you head out into the mission field, you're saying that you, you had only known the simple narrative at that point, And you were, I mean, that's all you knew. You, you knew the simple story and you hadn't encountered these things at that point. Right. Yeah, that's right. Yeah. And that just, I'm just trying to imagine what that feels like, right? Cause you've, you're, you know, you're, you're a young adult, older teenager. You're, you're heading out into the mission field. Were you 18 or 19? I was 19. I was 19 because the uh-huh. age change hadn't happened yet. And you get out in the mission field and, and you're dedicating two years of your life to Heavenly Father and to His church. And then you encounter this stuff, which just completely shifts your paradigm. Like maybe speak for a moment to like the emotion of that and, and what it was like to go through that and, and maybe how long that patch lasted. Yeah. So, yeah, the first thing that came up for me as you're saying those things is that I remember driving um, with a group of friends before I left on my mission, and I made the statement that I thought that if that once people learned the the full set of missionary lessons, then there was no way that they wouldn't be converted, and and that's the kind of the mentality that that I left with. To my mission, where I was just, I was just certain that it was just a matter of people hearing all the things that we were going to tell them as missionaries, and that's how they would know the truth. Um, and it would be that simple. Uh, so when I when I started realizing that it wasn't that simple, and that there were things in the history that I had no idea were true, and that 
before I'd given them full consideration, I just wrote them off as anti-Mormon material. Um, <clears throat> once that hit, uh, it was, I wouldn't say like clinical depression, but certainly um, just be- bewilderment. Uh, maybe more of an existential crisis where I'm just starting to think, oh, my goodness, if this isn't as simple as I thought, then what is true? And then starting to worry, oh, my word, if I don't really know that this is true, then what am I doing telling other people that this is true? And there was a there was a patch. I want to say this lasted for four months, maybe four to six months. And during this time, I just <laughs> it sounds strange to say this, but uh, I, I was focused on what what was going well. And a lot of times I would fo- fixate on like, OK, I'm going to have breakfast tomorrow morning and um, I have an appointment with with somebody. But <clears throat> when you're a missionary, you don't get many of the pleasures of life. And so for me, like waking up and having breakfast was a go to as silly as that sounds. It was like <laughs> a very simple thing to hold on to that kind of grounded me a little bit Uh during the anxiety, it's just like okay, one one day at a time, and one appointment at a time, I guess. Right. How how are you exploring? So you're on your mission. This is before missionaries are using uh, iPads, right? This is this is before they're encouraged to kind of go out and, and use the internet a little bit. Um, you're running into some of this by just talking to people out on your mission, but but after you become aware of these issues, how are you exploring them? Uh, <laughs> the thing was is that I wasn't able to explore them very much. I for instance, one guy I ran into who had studied a lot about Mormonism, he was the one that we just knocked on his door and he brought us in. And then he started telling us about the Abraham Papyrus. And he seemed completely sincere and normal. And so I didn't have reason to doubt what he was saying. Um, and then another guy that we had run into said that Joseph Smith had shot people in Carthage jail. And I, I actually did confirm that through an experience in the LDS library where I looked up, they had the seven volume history of the church by BH Roberts. And so I read the scene from that BH Roberts has there. And he talks about the pepper pistol that Joseph Smith had. And, you know, before I read that, I, I wasn't sure if that guy who talked about Joseph Smith shooting people was being earnest or not, or if he just heard some weird rumor but after reading that from B.H. Roberts and seeing it confirmed, I realized that indeed, like this wasn't just anti-Mormon material. This was these were just things I hadn't ever heard before. Yeah, and I, I want to speak to that for a moment because I've got some of the same experience. Where for a while I was teaching non-credited classes at a couple of universities in my hometown, and I would go teach on Mormonism. I would teach. Uh, one week I would go for an hour, or no, actually it was two hours, two hours, and I would teach on the history of the church, and then I'd come back another week and take a day and teach two hours on the doctrine of the church. And I did this at uh, two local colleges uh, near where I lived in, in Ohio. And what I found interesting was that when we got to the Q&A, was that non-members who were taking these non-credited classes, these weren't dummies. These These people read, and they were informed, and they... They knew various aspects of religion generally, and they knew things about the LDS faith that the average member of the church is, I think, clueless to. And 
I think what you're speaking to, there's this kind of added, there's this added stress, I think, when you realize that people outside your church seem to know more about your history than you and the other members in the church did. Does that make sense? Absolutely. Yeah, I and, felt that that was part of the stress for sure. Yeah, and I think it adds to it. And and I wonder if maybe if if you can relate maybe any feelings you have what happens when when we encounter new information that people who really shouldn't know the information know it and then you're in the in group and you don't you don't have a, you're not privy to it. You don't have a clue about it. There there seems to be this sense of real deep betrayal like why didn't they tell me that? Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. That's that's certainly the case. This feeling of betrayal. Um, I don't know if it w- if I don't know why this is the case, but for whatever reason, I didn't feel angered by the by that sense of betrayal. I felt like that people who uh, knew about the church and didn't say everything about the church um, had I, I don't know if I would say legitimate reasons, but they had their reasons for doing that. And it didn't ever strike me as something that was terribly deliberate, um, but I did feel b- betrayed. I, I don't know if that's that's not an articulate way to say it, um, but I didn't have the anger directed at any one person. I should say it this way. I felt betrayed by the weakness of humanity, I guess I would say, rather than any individual church leader. Right, right. And... And I really, I mean, I appreciate you saying that because so many of us, when we get into this, this space where, where we realize that, like, we didn't, we didn't, we weren't given all the information. We didn't, we didn't, everything wasn't taught to us. And I'm stammering here because I'm, I'm trying to walk this line of trying to ask the questions that I know the listeners want to hear, but at the same time, I want to couch things as positive as possible. And, I know for me, I felt deeply betrayed and it was, it was an angering betrayal. It was a really, um, frustrating and sad and I was angry and I was mad and I was, uh, I couldn't sleep and I, there were days I cried, you know, hours on end just trying to figure all this out. And, and yet your approach to, to the same paradigm shift, I mean, you're, you're encountering problems and you're realizing the church never taught them to you and yet you're giving, this measure of charity back to the church, which I just find to be ennobling and, and worthy of just stopping and talking about that for a moment, that, that in the, the shift in your faith, that somehow you found it within yourself or it just came naturally. I, I'd love you to talk a little more, but like what, what kept you from being angry? What, what made it more of like, well, you know, it's unfortunate. It's, uh, it's frustrating, but I'm going to cut people a break for why it happened. I think there were two things. So one is that the first one is that I saw a reason to be empathetic because I was a missionary telling people that things that I just realized weren't completely true. But I had been doing that for at least a year by that point. And so the fact that I had been doing that myself made me realize how people could be conveying things that they didn't quite know weren't true. Does that make sense? So, for instance, Joseph Smith grew up in a family that believed in folk magic, and I grew up in a family that believed in the dominant narrative of Mormonism. And so um, I was able to see how somebody could believe things that weren't, yeah, they weren't completely true. And so the fact that I had 
been teaching those things myself made me stop and realize like this is a problem not just with Mormonism this is a problem with humans humans are very easily um they they very easily get into a situation where they say things that they um that aren't completely true and so so that made me see that this isn't just a Mormon problem this is a human problem we want things to be true so desperately that a lot of times we just stick to them even against the even even against the best evidence i've been reading a little bit into psychology lately john where there's this idea we we, talk, we know about confirmation bias that we look for things that confirm what we already want to believe but there's this other phenomenon called belief persistence which is that when we believe something to be true if somebody presents evidence against it and they don't do it ultra gently ultra subtly really trying to just slowly bring us along, our minds will just naturally defend our current belief, even if the evidence is, you know, mounting and, and, and large in scale, we'll still just hold on to our old beliefs. And I just, I love this idea that you're, that you're extending this charity because I think you're hitting on a really important point that the listeners have got to kind of grapple with, which is, that if you go back in our history, certainly there are a handful of people who we could question their motives, but certainly withheld information or chose to not put the difficult aspects at the forefront and, and chose to hold those back at times to even hide them. And I, and I, I know this feels like a strong thing because we don't know the exact reasons why I did it, but my, my thought goes to Joseph Fielding Smith tearing out the 1832 account out of the journal. But, but you're granting these, you're granting the church this charity, which says like, even, even in spite of there being a handful of people who perhaps, maybe, we can argue it, intentionally tried to, I don't want to use the word deceive, but, but withhold information and to keep us seeing the simple story, you seem to, you seem to recognize really quickly that generally speaking, the church wasn't doing that. The church's leadership was made up of people like you and me, who before our faith transition, before we, we took those black and white glasses off, that's just the way it was, right? Absolutely. That's exactly right. So, and that leads to the second point about how I, how I, for whatever reason, approached it, which is that I can sympathize with the impulse to choose what is, what is good, what somebody perceives as good. So in that story with Joseph Fielding Smith, you know, he hit the pages. And he likely did it not to be malicious, although I think that was a bad thing. What he, I think what he did was a bad thing. But he didn't do it with the intent to hurt people. He did it with the intent to save the organization that he saw as being the best thing that was happening to the world. And that's that motive, while I don't agree with the action, is a motive that I can have sympathy for. And I can say, yeah, I can... I can see why somebody would act that way out of out of a good place in their heart. Right, right. And to protect the good name of his family. Right, right. exactly. He was, yeah, that's exactly right. So you write this book, and I want to, you know, uh, there's a ton of books out there right now. There's Patrick Mason's Planted. There's uh, Thomas Wordland McConkie's Navigating a Mormon Faith Crisis. There's other books out there that hit on faith transitions in the culture at large outside of Mormonism. Um what was what was the specific reason you wrote this book 
when Mormons doubt, a way to save relationships and seek a quality of life. Like what was the moment like the light bulb went off in your head and you said, this book is needed and I'm going to write it? That's a good question. I don't know if there was a moment, but there were many moments that led up to this book. And the main impulse is that I saw a lot of people who were leaving who didn't know what to hold on to as they left. So the first impulse is kind of to say, well, I was Mormon and now I'm not Mormon anymore. And so I'm just going to live my life kind of the inverse of Mormonism. What When Mormonism says X, I'm going to say Y or Z, you know. And so I, I was very interested in coming up with a framework that former Mormons could live by. And that's not to say it's the framework by any stretch. This is just a set of ideas that might prove useful. At the same time, a lot of people who's, who have a loved one who left didn't have a framework to be able to view that person as not immediately being a failure. So when, in my experience, a lot of times when somebody leaves the church or somebody doubts, they're kind of written off as the black sheep or they're written off as the child who didn't succeed or the wayward parent. And I wanted to show this framework to say, hey, even if somebody doubts or if somebody leaves, there's still a way for you to be able to see them as successful and also, in that same vein, be able to enjoy the journey with that person, even if you are at crossroads when it comes to belief. So that was the main impulse for the book. Gotcha. I I love... So you hit on this idea throughout the book of of truth, beauty, and goodness, and and you kind of have this be a running theme through the book. I know you strongly hit on it early on, and you and you finish strong talking about this too, which we'll we'll kind of ask a question on this at the end as well. But I, I, I listened to you on a thoughtful faith with Gina Colvin. I, I love Gina's work, and I loved the interview you did with her. And and one of the things you guys were talking about was this idea of truth as like factual data points is best understood through, uh, let's say, scientific inquiry or the uh, a natural educational way of looking and trying to discover information and find truth. And then you speak to beauty and goodness maybe being more of a spiritual interaction. And, and I want to have you parse this out for the listeners here because what you were saying, and, and, and I, I 100% agree with you, so, but I'm also going to push a little bit because what you're what you're saying here, in a sense, contradicts the way the church frames in its rhetoric, in its vernacular, the way it frames truth, what truth is, and how we go about finding truth. And and you come in from this completely different angle. Rather than say, look, you can you can use Moroni ten through through five to find out if Joseph actually went into the grove and talked to two spiritual beings. You seem to say, like, that's something we really can't know. Tr- truth that we can know, we're best learning through the scientific method, but we certainly should be using the Holy Ghost, the Spirit, you know, whatever it is that we want to define that word as, to find things that are good and beautiful. And I wonder maybe if you can, just for the listeners, kind of parse out truth and how we how we discover it and how you'd frame that, because I'm putting my words on, I want to hear yours, and and beauty and goodness and how we go about finding that and and how you've come to that point and reconciled that. 
It's a, yeah, it's a very big question and very, it's a lot to wade through. Uh, but I would start by saying that this distinction between truth and beauty is really important for the book. And I think it's a really important point to consider when we're trying to figure out what is true and what is false. Let me start by saying this. We, I would say that in the book, I, I use beauty as a spiritual experience. That's the equivalent that I'm saying, that you were looking for beautiful experiences and that these beautiful experiences happen to believers of all faiths and they also happen to non-believers, atheists, and they can be very profound and transformative. They can happen and they often happen in nature. They often happen in meditation, in prayer, in singing hymns. And the point there is that those experiences are extremely worthwhile and we need a lot more of those experiences on the earth for all of us around the world. And then the reason I start with that is because what can happen in religions, and this is, this has kind of been in vogue since the romantics in uh, the 1800s where people, philosophers got tired of the logical proofs for God that had been in vogue for many, many centuries where people said, we know that God exists because A, B, C, D, E, F, G, you know, and they listed out all the reasons. In the Romantic era, they kind of said, okay, we're done with those logical proofs for the existence of God, and they went more toward feeling. And even John Keats, a poet during the time, he said, truth is beauty, and truth is beauty. And that notion is kind of stuck, and that's the notion that I'm kind of playing with in the book, that truth isn't beauty, that there is a there is a line between the two. And the line is that, for instance, um, if I had, well, I did, you know, I prayed to know that the Book of Mormon was true, and I had this feeling of beauty. And if somebody were to say, how did Joseph Smith translate the Book of Mormon, or how did it come to be, I would have said at the time, this is years ago, that Joseph Smith translated the Book of Mormon. Um, from the Golden Plates, because that's what I had been taught, and that's what my experience of beauty confirmed. But then truth doesn't care too much about the emotions that you've had concerning an experience. And as I learned more about the history of the church and about the translation of the Book of Mormon, I learned that, no, in fact, he translated it by, translated it by looking into a hat. And so this is what I'm saying when I talk about how the, there's a distinction between truth and beauty. I could have a spiritual experience, and that spiritual experience is real and important and vital to me because it transformed me into a more generous and kind human being, as I felt, as I might say, like the, the presence of God. But that experience doesn't necessarily translate into knowing exactly how the world works in terms of uh, how the Book of Mormon came to be, for instance. So I'm drawing that distinction there that we need more beautiful experiences, but we need to recognize that those beautiful experiences don't always lead us to um, scientific truths or historical truths. And so if one, if one wants to get at truths... And we recognize, right? You and I both recognize that absolute truth can also be really difficult to get at 
people record history different ways. People mm-hmm. see experiences differently. But at the same time, we recognize that there still are things that are true and things that are not. What is your suggestion on the best way to go about finding that truth? Like how do we – what's the best way to discover truth? <laughs> That's a good question. And there are many different kinds of truth, I would say. So there's empirical truths that you can know through the scientific method. For instance, like you can say – um, which is better to build a buildings with a skyscraper with straw or steel, right? And you can test it and you can say, okay, clearly it's better to build a skyscraper with steel because you can see the, the results of doing that. Um, so those would be empirical truths. And a lot of times history can come close to those, but not quite because it, like you said, it's always being filtered through an interpretation. So then there are like, then there are conceptual truths. Um, that we agree on because they, um, because society says this is the way we're, this is the way that, uh, we all agree that this works. So a historian would privilege certain sources over others and they would say, okay, yes, there are conflicting sources, but eight of them that appear to be very valid say X and only one of them says Y. So we're going to trust in X. X seems like the better option because there are more people saying it and they they seem like more credible sources down the line. And so that would get us we would we would then say, OK, you know, historically, this seems to be the most accurate way. And for instance, in the case of Joseph Smith looking into a hat there, there are plenty of completely valid historians who agree that that is that that is true. And so there's little reason to deny it. And even the church itself came out with that picture of the seer stone, you know, and has embraced the idea more and more lately. And so in terms of getting closer to the truth, you can see in that situation that I'm bringing up, it's not a matter of praying to God to have a spiritual experience. It's a matter of looking at how academic historians work and saying, you know, they have validity in their um, field. You you see, though, how that's that's going to be contrary to how a Latter-day Saint's raised, right? This idea that Latter-day if I go into Sunday school class, anything I say that makes anyone in that room uncomfortable, they're going to work from the standpoint of the Holy Ghost leads me to all truth, and anything that bothers me, is is something contrary to the Holy Spirit, and and so it feels like you're suggesting like like we've got a ways to go on this. Like we're going to have to, if we're going to make room for people who doubt it within our faith, if we're going to change the way we talk to better accommodate the actual history that we're trying to be more transparent with, that has a lot more paradoxes and nuance and and leaves valid reason to make other conclusions than the church is true, then then. To be a more mature faith, we're going to have to make some progress in this area. And, and it sounds like you're saying like we're going to have to create some space where we let people come to truth perhaps in one way and still recognize the beauty that the gospel has even if even if there's a discrepancy on what that beauty absolutely means. That's right. Um, you've got a section in the book. You talk about Rob Bell and, and he's – He's talking about different pieces of, of art and, and enlightening things and something gets presented that's from Gandhi and somebody in the crowd says, you know, it doesn't matter. Gandhi's in hell. 
and I, and I chuckled when I read this part of your book. Again, we're talking with John Ogden, author of When Mormons Doubt. In the, in this story that you're sharing, maybe, maybe tell us a little more about the story, but also it really hits close to home on how all of us as human beings, not just Mormons, but all of us as human beings make these judgments of what's going to be acceptable information to us and what isn't. And that because Gandhi wasn't in the Christian fold, so to say, that there's, that there's those of us out there who just discount somebody without taking the actual value of what they have to share. Would, would you mind sharing that story? Sure. Rob Bell was in charge of a congregation and he had an art show and the people in his congrega- congregation made pieces for this art show and made a beautifully rendered quote from Gandhi. And in the middle of the show, somebody had attached a note that said, reality check, Gandhi's in hell. So like you said, the assumption was that because Gandhi wasn't Christian, he and therefore what didn't have access to Christ's saving grace, that Gandhi wasn't saved, that he was indeed in hell. And Rob Bell says, and somebody knew this and felt certain enough that they wanted to tell the rest of us that this was true. So he kind of calls it into question. How can how can you be certain about somebody else's fate in the afterlife? And it's a story that led him to write a book called Love Wins, where he talks about the importance of love. And it caused an enormous outcry in evangelical circles because he was threatening the idea that we know what happens to non-Christians in the afterlife. And he was saying, we don't know. But what we can trust in is that love wins. Right. And, and, Obviously, you're kind of, and throughout the book, kind of calling for this approach as well, which is to let the afterlife just kind of sort itself out. Let's just all work to help each other be be better and, and to encourage each other and to lift each other up in the here and now and and not get so stressed over drawing lines. And, and it's one of those things that we do when we're in that black and white stage is we want to draw fences around my group to keep your group out. And And we find this throughout it doesn't matter what religion, it doesn't have to be Mormonism, it can be Christianity, it can be other faiths altogether. But this idea that, that we just need to maybe back off a little bit and, and recognize that, you know, if there's a God up there, even if Mormonism is true, God within Mormonism has set down his mission statement, which is to, uh, it's his work and his glory to bring to pass the immortality, eternal life of man. He's trying to save all of his children and to recognize that Mormonism is such a small, small drop in the bucket of all the faiths out there. That it seems, it seems reasonable to say, look, God's working with his children outside of Mormonism, so why are we going to judge somebody else as not able to make it because of a certain set of beliefs they have rather than the life of service they lived? Um, you, you hit on, and again, I, I chuckled at this part too. I was a big fan growing up of Mr. Rogers, but you, you juxtaposed Pascal's wager versus what you call Mr. Rogers' wager. I wonder if you could maybe walk us through what you're doing there, like what you see as wanting to be set up and then what you're coming in and saying, no, let's, let's use this instead. Sure. So Pascal's wager, this comes from Blaise Pascal, who was a believing Catholic, and he decided that it was better to believe in God because if you believed, then in the afterlife, if you believed and you were right, then in the afterlife you would be saved because God would grant you access to heaven because you believed in him, as opposed to not believing. Because if you didn't believe and you were wrong, then in the afterlife, God wouldn't grant you access to heaven. 
Now, the alternative is that there's nothing. Um, but in that case, it's still better to believe because in the, the chance that you, that there is an afterlife. So Pascal's wager is that it's better to believe because it's better to place your bet on the idea that God exists because no matter what, you're going to end up with a better reward as a result or an equivalent reward if there's no afterlife. So that idea still plays out, I think, in Mormonism and in all religions or most religions around the world that they say, you know what, even if it's not true, I'm still going to believe because that's the safer bet. Now, the problem with that idea, one of the problems, I think there are many problems with this idea, one of the problems is that, let's say that Blaise Pascal was right and that it was better to believe in God. Well, he believed in a niche version of Catholicism that's hundreds of years old that very few people, if any, alive today believe in. And so if a Mormon says, you know, I want to, I, I believe in Pascal's wager, I'm going to take the bet that God exists. Well, what if it's Pascal's God? Or what if it's Allah or some other God? And he's angry at you for not believing in him because you believed in your own version of God. Um, that's just one reason that Pascal's wager, I think, doesn't hold up because there's so many ways to still get it wrong, even if you believe in God. Well, which God? So rather than worry about all of that, about getting fixated on, oh my gosh, do I, ha- do I have belief in the right God? Am I doing all the right things? Um, so I can please him and therefore get access into heaven. I propose this idea of Mr. Rogers wager, which is that Mr. Rogers, he said constantly in a show, he said, I like you just the way you are. And what if we treated other people with that as our theme or our motto, instead of worrying so much about how they would fare in the afterlife? What if we could lead with, saying, I like you just the way you are. Now, somebody might say, oh, that's horrible because you're you're just condoning bad behavior. But that's not at all what Mr. Rogers was about. He wasn't saying, like, I condone, you know, a whole, a whole list of sins because I like you just the way you are. In fact, it was, I, I, I tend to think that it's the opposite, where if you can truly love somebody the way they are, they feel less inclined toward selfishness, and toward addiction, they feel accepted. They feel they feel like they want to be generous to other people as well. And so, if we can take if we can take this wager and say, I place all my bets on loving other people the way they are. Let's say that you happen to be wrong um, about your beliefs. You know, heaven forbid. I can only imagine a God of mercy saying, "You did it right. That was." That was the goal, is to learn how to love people the way that they are. And I could extend that story with Gandhi to Mr. Rogers as well, um, saying, certainly Mr. Rogers, I mean, I say certainly with an asterisk, because truly I don't know. Um, but certainly if anyone were to, to receive the grace of God, then it would be somebody like Mr. Rogers. And I, want to follow that example and say, if I have to place a bet, I think the safest bet is to learn how to love people as they are. 
Yeah, and I and I'm with you. And unfortunately, whenever we we separate ourselves from others and say there's us and then there's them, and we do this with religious lines all the time, it makes it so difficult for the group generally to to begin to see the world that way. And and I'm with you. Like I'm just trying to compare Mr. Rogers. I don't even know what you know what if he was Christian or what faith he belonged to or what what sect or denomination he went to, if he showed up to church on Sunday or if he stayed home and, you know, read a book. I don't know. But what I do know is that when I look at Mr. Rogers, what he encapsulated versus the person in the crowd who wrote the note about Gandhi and what that statement alone encapsulates, you're right. I'll place my bets. I'll place my bets with the person who's offering generosity and validation and empathy to the rest of humankind rather than trying to draw a line or put a fence around one group to separate it from another. And so I think you, you hit on a really important point with that. You, you've got a part in the book where you talk about why truth is hard to find and you talk about why we feel before we reason. And I was talking earlier about belief persistence and confirmation bias and, and this plays right into this. Maybe talk for a moment about maybe the psychology behind that or just your personal experience or or frame for us kind of this idea of of how human beings generally will feel before they reason things out. Yeah, I'm glad you circled back to this because this is probably where I should have started that conversation about truth earlier. Truth often is uncomfortable. And that's not something that we're taught to believe in Mormonism. We're taught that when you hear truth, it's going to bring this spiritual revelatory experience. In reality, though, one story I share in the book is that is the the story in fifth grade of how I learned how babies were made. And it was in uh, fifth grade, yeah, as I said, fifth grade class, and without prompting, another classmate turned to me and he asked me if I knew. And I said, of course I know how. And I said, uh, first, and then he said, how? I said, first, you have to get married and then you kiss. And he just laughed and the other kids at the table laughed at me. And then he told me how it really worked. And I knew he was right when he said it. And for a number of days afterward, the rest of the kids continued to make fun of me for not knowing. And the reason I share that story is that a lot of times truth is just simply uncomfortable when we discover that we didn't know something, that we misunderstood something, that we had no idea that the world worked the way that it did. It causes anxiety. It causes um, humility. And yet that doesn't mean that it's not true. So this is what happened going back to my story on my mission or afterwards. Once I started learning more about the history of the church and realizing that my simple narrative didn't add up, then I started to realize, or I I immediately felt uncomfortable. But again, that's not a sign that those things aren't true. It's a sign of growth, a sign of learning new things. So that's why I think this distinction between truth and beauty is so crucial for people in the LDS church to recognize that beauty is one thing that should be pursued and truth is another, and they don't always overlap. Sometimes the truth just hurts. And sometimes our interpretations of beauty aren't true. But both of those things are simultaneously valid and important in their own ways. 
Yeah, it's, it's so true. And I, I hope that Mormonism can get to a place where it can begin to parse that out, parse out truth and beauty and realize that just because something's beautiful doesn't mean that it's exactly true the way we framed it in our mind. And this idea that you've put across that we just, we always go to emotion before we go to logic. And, and I find that to be so true. I, I've been doing some listening and reading lately on a, on a, idea called street epistemology. And it's this idea that for people of either various faiths or perhaps atheist to go out and have conversations with others who believe very strong things, but to try and have this conversation where you break some of those barriers down and begin to really talk about how we know the things we know in this process, you, you essentially are asking people, what is something you believe in? And you're trying to set how they know that. And then you're asking these gentle questions that get people to kind of examine why they know something. So a Mormon might say, I know, you know, the Book of Mormon's true because I prayed about it and I felt a warm sensation, a peace come over my body. And, and yet that prayer and those feelings are experienced by people of other faiths, people of dramatically different faiths whose claims very much contradict our own. And when you begin to realize that other people in the world who believe very different, even contradictory things also have these beautiful, as you put it, these feelings of beauty, these, these beautiful touches from wherever they come from, then you begin to realize that maybe these feelings don't tell me what is true or what isn't, but they certainly might tell me what is good. And, and you hit on that throughout the book too. And I just, I want to, I just want to mention that so that listeners, if you're, I think John's written a wonderful book and to, to go out and to take a look at this is just one more book that, that kind of approaches doubt and from a different angle that I don't think has been touched on before. And I just want to let you know, I really appreciate the work you've done here, John. Um, you, you talk a little bit about we've got to abend our opinions to fit the truth. And I want to ride this on the coattails of the last question that we just asked, but we all have opinions. We all have beliefs. We all hold things to be true. And, some of us, you know, you, I, and, and lots of other Mormons right now who've, who are going through these transitions, we've had to let go of things that we thought were so true. And, and now we're trying to grab onto new things and we don't know necessarily what ground is stable and what ground isn't. And everything's up for grabs, it feels like. Maybe speak for a moment to those who, who love somebody like me or somebody like you who, who care about us, who are trying to help us, who, who still hold a ton of things to be true and have never really and I don't want to say it from a negative standpoint, but allowed those things to be vulnerable, to really examine them and say, do I really, do I really hold these things to be true? Or is this just, is this just the beliefs I've had my entire life and never allowed them to really be up for examination? Talk for a moment about how we have to bend our opinions to fit the truth. Sure. Yeah, this does fit nicely with the last question because like I said, the, a lot of times truth is simply uncomfortable and yet if we're, if we're serious about pursuing the truth, we can't persist in things that we, that we wouldn't consider as true in another religion. So, for instance, like you were saying, let's say a Muslim prays to know whether his church is true, or his religion is true, rather, and he gets this confirmation, or this powerful spiritual experience, and there are thousands and thousands of examples of this happening to people of different religions. And then he uses that experience as 
proof that his religion is true. And a Mormon does the same, and a Catholic does the same, and a Jew does the same. And like I said, there are many experiences like this that that have come up that show that this is the way that it occurs frequently with religion. And then this is really a, a human story because it even happens with um, scientific truths that people will get so enamored with with the discovery in the past that when a completely new paradigm comes, say Einstein or um, the shift to germ theory, where you know they they found that there was a correlation between washing hands and a decrease in disease being spread, scientists will even hold on to prior ideas of what was true. All humans do this. We all get comfortable with tradition and we we start to equate truth with tradition because that is comfortable, right? We've heard it so many times that we move from just saying, oh, that's a nice sentiment to saying that's a true sentiment. And then we lock into that even at the face of evidence. So as I was saying, this happened with germ theory early on. It was just ridiculed that this could possibly be a truth. And many of the things that Einstein taught, you know, at the very first, they were ridiculed as being nonsense. What that means is that all human beings really should be cautious about what they declare as true, because we all have a tendency to equate tradition with truth, and that has been proven over and over again as not necessarily being correlated. So when I say that we must bend our opinions to the truth, I'm saying that, like this idea of germ theory, it's crucial because if we start to wash our hands more in that case, then we we prevent disease and destruction um, of life. And then the same type of thing could be said about it within Mormon circles. So let's say, for instance, a belief that um, blacks shouldn't have the priesthood, right? That, or this belief that be, was a tradition. And we can kind of look back now and say, Ugh, that wasn't that wasn't a good part of Mormonism. And we can it's easier now, certainly, to look back and say, hey, that wasn't that wasn't true. That was something that came in through um, cultural heritage and it wasn't it wasn't divine in any sense. But we should look at other areas in our lives and say the same thing. Like can we can we step back and say, well what other beliefs do we have that are quietly destructive and how do we need to conform our opinion to fit the truth? And that exercise, I think the exercise not only gets us closer to truth, but it can also be a very powerful spiritual experience to open yourself up in that way and be vulnerable. And to complete the trio, it also leads us to toward goodness when we, when we start to say, you know what? I wasn't right. I'm going to treat people with more respect and more love because I realized that I was too quick to hold on to what my single worldview was and say that that was the truth and all, all others were flawed. 
you um, there's a part in the book where you you talk about going off into social media and, and asking unorthodox Mormons why they stay and 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 the other side of the coin I want to throw in too, which is why some doubting Latter Day Saints leave, which you mentioned briefly, uh, kind of hitting on that that group uh, early on in the interview. There's this idea that that people who leave leave because they're lazy or they they want to sin or they just didn't have enough faith and and there's all these reasons we come up with as a community to blame them so that we can stay comfortable because we've stayed and and then there's people who do stay who've worked through these faith transitions who are still going every week and and you kind of talk a little bit about why they stay and and I'm sure that if we were to get you know orthodox mormons and, and I don't like, you know, these labels all fall short and we realize that. But, but if we say the, you know, if we say these Orthodox Mormons, if we ask them, why would an unorthodox Mormon stay? And they probably come up with all these answers of, well, they've, you know, they've been touched by the Holy Ghost and they know it's, they know it's true in spite of their questions or, but when we actually dig into the data, the reasons people discover the messiness and stay or leave is very different, I think, from the answers we have been culturally raised to to kind of think and give maybe talk for a moment about why unorthodox mormons stay and and maybe too if you can add in any insight on why some of those with doubts leave and what some of the reasons are for that sure i think that of the three truth beauty and goodness most unorthodox people who decide to stay decide to stay because they find goodness in the community they they recognize that no institution is without flaws and they recognize that the church has has flaws and the history is complicated and messy but they see that the organization of the church brings goodness in their life i mean this is this is what richard bushman says he says that he becomes a better man because of mormonism and that's not to say that they don't believe the truth claims or that they don't believe that it brings beauty. They, they also may believe those things as well, though they might take a more metaphorical approach rather than a literal approach when they talk about truth. That it, that the metaphor of many of the, um, stories in scripture is that the metaphor is true. So that's the reason I think that many unorthodox people decide to stay because they they find value in the community and they realize that any community is going to be flawed. Um, sorry, there were there were several aspects to the question. What what was the other aspect? Well, I just most Latter Day Saints who are in the church and and see things still kind of in that black and white paradigm where everything fits and is beautiful. There's this tendency in our manuals, in our talks, in our conversation in our culture generally and and I again not to be negative but I think it starts at the very top and works its way to the very bottom there's this this rhetoric that those who leave didn't have enough faith they wanted to sin or they just were lazy and I just wanted you to speak for a moment about how those three really fall not that those don't exist not that people don't leave for those reasons but that in the scheme of thing when we look at all the data those aren't the real reasons most people who are dedicated and both feet in at some point leave the church. Definitely. 
Yeah, just in terms of opening up sympathy for those who do, who do decide to leave. Is that what you right. want just, me to talk just about? Compa- yeah, just compassion and, and understanding for where they're at so that rather than judge them as being less than us, right. recognizing that they are doing their best to live true to their truth as we are. Right, absolutely. Yeah, so the the key there is to, I think, just turn your perspective on what is success. And that's the second part of the subtitle of the book is how to seek a quality life. So, for instance, if if somebody is sincerely studying the history and they come across things that just don't make any sense and that don't jive with them, for instance, polygamy, right? There, there are a lot of people who are deeply disturbed, and I, I would say rightly so, for the the uh, his, what happened historically with polygamy, and even today, you know, right now I'm reading Carolyn Pearson's book, The Ghost of Eternal Polygamy, where, I, I mean, I had no idea the extent that so many Latter-day Saints, as women particularly, have been troubled, and again, rightly so, for this belief that um, if if they had to, or if their husband would marry other women in the afterlife, right? That's a that's a horrible thing to have to face and wrestle with. And for somebody who has wrestled with that for, let's say, decades, and then finally decides that it's too much, given all the historical baggage, the, um, I, I would say, frankly, immorality with polygamy, then I have all the room in the world in terms of sympathy for people like that. Because they they not only have had a struggle internally for so long but then once they finally come out and say you know what this is too much i i can't remain part of this community anymore then they're often um banned or forgotten about by their community these in many cases they certainly aren't loved and accepted for their decision at the exact same time that i say that i still have a lot of empathy and sympathy for those who decide to stay. And I can understand why they might um, not applaud those who leave. And the reason is that it's very threatening. It's very scary for them, right? To see somebody who they leave, somebody who they trust and respect leave the church. That can be one of the most threatening things from, from like a existential point in their life, because it means that now they have to face their own doubts and that can be extremely difficult. So, if that makes sense, like I, I have, I think that those who leave for similar reasons to what I just explained deserve all of our empathy. And those who dig in their heels often also deserve empathy because it's such a threatening thing to face the possibility that your worldview could be flawed in a major way. And so I go back to that idea that this is a human story. It's not a Mormon story, right? These are human beings have had to wrestle with these things for as long as we've been around. And they're very difficult things. And we should have empathy for those who, those who deal with the issues, no matter what side they fall on. Yeah. And I, and I think that the recognition that, whether someone stays or they leave, many of them, like, like grant them 
the validation that, that they are chasing their beauty as well, wherever that is, wherever that leads them, whether it's in the church or out, that, that those who leave, rather than wanting to just label them as lazy or wanting to sin, rather that things were so tough and painful here that they chose to leave for their own peace and to find greater beauty in the world and, and to just respect that and honor it for what it is. Um, what I did find kind of interesting, I was surprised, as I'm reading through the book, I come across the Richard Bushman quote that the dominant narrative is not true, and I'm thinking, wait a minute, he just said that a few weeks ago. Um, how did you get that in the book so quick, uh, John? Yeah, so that was the last thing that I added in. Uh, the book was complete and ready to go, and then I saw that happen just a few days before I was about to publish it, uh, which I did through Amazon. And it was such a compelling quote because it got, it finally was a way to articulate what I've been trying to articulate for so long, which is that I wouldn't, I was always uncomfortable with the idea of saying the church isn't true because I felt it was such a, it was painting the, the situation with such a broad brush that there, there are so many things that are factored into that statement. The church is true or the church isn't true that you kind of have to unpack it every single time you say it. Well, what I mean by that is, right, um, and it's such a, a broad term that I didn't find it useful. But when Richard Bushman said that the dominant narrative isn't true, I thought that's something that I think a lot of people can agree on. They can say, you know, the way we've been taught about how the Book of Mormon was translated, how the Book of Abraham was translated, uh, how polygamy worked, that narrative just isn't true. And so I kind of scrambled at the last minute to make sure I included that in the book because I thought it was such an important phrase. And then I also say that, you know, Richard Bushman, he came out and he said, you know, I, I still, he still believes in the divine origin of Mormonism. So here's an example of somebody who's willing to say the dominant narrative isn't true and yet they remain Mormon, which to me is it should free up those who leave and those who stay to kind of lose some of the anxiety that they might have. Because you could say the dominant narrative isn't true and leave, and you could say the dominant narrative isn't true and stay. And in both cases, if you can admit that, then you should have respect for those who make either of those decisions. Love it, love it. And that'll lead us right into kind of the last question I wanted to ask you. So you've got Bushman saying the dominant narrative isn't true, and we have Mormonism at large kind of recognizing that it, it's it been less transparent in the past, and it needs to be more transparent and hopefully get to a point of being fully transparent in the future, and it's working to do that, and, and as it does that, members of the church are really struggling because all of a sudden, the average member of the church who who could have remained oblivious to all this stuff if it wasn't for the internet, now is recognizing that even the church is coming out and saying, yep, Here's a seer stone. We didn't talk about that before, but this is how the Book of Mormon was translated. Every member in the church is having to make, on whatever scale, maybe small, maybe big, but having to make some shifts. And and you kind of, towards the end of the book, begin to kind of maybe help those recognize maybe what the most important shift is, which is a division of truth and beauty. And we've talked about it through the whole episode. But maybe just finish us off telling, telling us, like, where you kind of see Mormonism having to get to, like what's that look like in terms of how 
how you would frame we us needing to divide truth and beauty, but also maybe what that would look like in application. So I would say that, again, it's something that is bigger than just Mormonism, that humanity as a whole needs to learn how to pursue truth, beauty, and goodness, and define a, a balanced pursuit of truth, beauty, and goodness, because this is one way to reach a, a quality life, which I, I would say it comes down to thinking about your funeral and thinking about what legacy you want to leave and how people, how you want people to remember you by. This is a good way to measure whether you are living a, a quality life. What would they say? What, you know, what could be said about you? What do you give to the world? So this is a problem that all human beings are wrestling with, that we want to live a meaningful life. We want to make it in the, in the universe, right? How do we do that? And so I say it's through the balanced pursuit of truth, beauty, and goodness. As This is one way to, to get at it. And so when it comes down to the church, I think it's the same thing, that just like humans are trying to live a quality life, the church needs to reflect and say, you know what, how can we be part of helping people reach this this end or this goal of living a quality life? What that looks like in practice is that the so when it comes to truth, the church needs to continue going down the road it is in terms of being more transparent. And I think they have made some good progress. There in my opinion there's a long way to go before they they are as transparent as they need to be to really being be pursuing the truth. But they are moving in that direction. The the thing I would say about beauty is like we've talked about making that gap between or acknowledging the gap between beauty and truth that not all spiritual experiences are necessarily um, evidence of truth. That said, I think Mormonism could do a lot more in terms of helping people feel beauty. I feel it sometimes in singing the hymns and sometimes in fasting testimony meeting when people are vulnerable. But there's a lot of times where I'm trying, but I don't feel it. And so really developing a practice where you can feel it more regularly. Uh, I would say here that um, I've been doing, I've done a few mindfulness meditation workshops uh, with Thomas Worth and McConkie, and they've been absolutely amazing in terms of helping me find the root of beauty and other workshops as well. I think there's a lot of work that Mormonism can do in terms of learning about mindfulness meditation and learning about how to nurture those feelings more frequently in your life because those feelings of beauty are absolutely essential to being generous and and feeling the way that we should about life, being grateful, etc. And so there I've talked about how to pursue truth and then how to pursue beauty and then finally goodness. I think that Mormonism, as I've said, does a lot when it comes to goodness because of the way it's organized. And this is this gets back to Eugene England's essay, Why the Church is as True as the Gospel, because we're organized in such a way that we know our neighbors or we know people in our ward, at least, 
And the more people you know in a situation, in a setting like church, the more you realize what you can do to help them when they're, when they have needs. So Mormonism has done a lot when it comes to community building. And there's a lot that other organizations can learn and should learn from Mormonism in terms of how to organize tight knit communities. That said, there's also a long way to go when it comes to goodness within Mormonism. Um, people, misunderstanding homosexuality, um, not treating the LGBT community with as much love as they deserve. There's just frankly a lot there that Mormonism can do better and a lot of work to be done still. So what I mean to say by all this is that just as a human being needs to learn how to pursue this balanced pursuit or how to find this balanced pursuit of truth, beauty, and goodness... The church does as well. And it's a learning process for all of us, and it's a learning process for all institutions. And so even if a human individual or an institution isn't quite there, we should remember that we, that there is still room for empathy for institutions and individuals who fall short of not quite making that balance. Thank you. John Ogden, author of When Mormons Doubt, A Way to Save Relationships and Seek a Quality of Life. John, where can, tell people where they can get the book. Uh, it's available via Amazon. So Kindle and paperback. Excellent. I'm holding a paperback copy here in front of me. Um, just a good read. Really enjoyed going through it. Grateful to have you on today and uh, just wanted to say I appreciate all the work you're doing. Oh, thanks so much. Thanks for having me. 